It's been great to do discipleship with the elders and really looking forward to this new season. Um, you'll hear a lot about discipleship if you're new to Mosaic. Uh, well, if you're new to Mosaic, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. I just want to say hi. Um, we have the awesome privilege of being here with everyone else um, of this family of faith. If you're new to Mosaic, you'll hear a lot about discipleship because it's kind of the bullseye target that we're reaching for for every single person. And this discipleship training is the most concentrated way that we want to make sure that we accomplish that. And so I really ask you to consider joining our discipleship training. Um, discipleship is a call to continue to run and follow after Jesus. And we've been in the book of Hebrews, and the book of Hebrews is essentially this letter to the church to continue to run towards Christ. And it's full of encouragements because it's encouraging a people who are running out of gas, people who are struggling to follow Jesus the book is full of encouragements to help them to continue to run. And the encouragements are big encouragements. They're not like little nudges to keep going, but they are big picture kind of things. We saw in the first chapter that we should continue in the faith and be encouraged because Jesus is high and lifted up. No truth, no principality higher than him. And so don't give up. Keep going after Christ. Last week we saw that not only is Jesus high, but he's also low. When you're in the toughest times of your life, when you're in the suffering parts of your life, he's there with you. And so be encouraged. Keep going. But today, uh, we look at Hebrews 3. And Hebrews 3 is interesting because Hebrews 3 says we should keep going. We should be encouraged because Jesus is greater than Moses. And now, what does that mean? That's a little bit. Uh, it, it takes some thought to understand what he's talking about. But this is what the writer of Hebrews is encouraging us to today. If we're going to run towards the faith that God has prepared for us, if we're going to move forward into the future, then we have to sometimes leave behind the past. Leave behind the past. And the Lord is calling us to look forward to Christ and not backwards to Moses. What that means is that if we're going to move forward, we can't be a captive to the past. If we're going to claim what Jesus has for us in our faith, then we can't constantly be pulled backwards. You see, Moses was the figure of the past for the Hebrew Christians, but he tells them that Jesus is greater than Moses. Moses might have been the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew hero of the past, but Jesus is your he hero of the future. And that's what he's going to tell us today. Now, I think that if we really understand Hebrews 3, then he's going to give us some keys to unlock some shackles that are keeping you from moving forward with the Holy Spirit. Today, he's going to unlock some of those keys for you. And so today, we're going to look at Hebrews 3, and we're going to see that Jesus is greater than Moses, and then we're going to see Jesus is greater than our past. We're going to take a look at the fact that he's greater than our communal past as a church, and then we're going to look at how he's greater than our sinful past personally. And I really pray that today be a day of freedom for God's captives, because I think that that's what he wants to give us today, freedom uh, from the things that are holding us back. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Father, I just want to proclaim that already. Proclaim that today is the day that you proclaim jubilee for those who have been held back by the various things of their past. I pray that show us that Jesus is greater. Show us his glory. And in showing us these things, I pray, help us to be encouraged to move forward into what you have for us. We trust you to speak to us, prepare our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
First of all, Jesus is greater than Moses. And it's going to take a little bit of unpacking to understand this. But if you read verse 3, this is what the writer of Hebrew says. Oh my goodness, we didn't even read the passage. I got so excited. We didn't even read the passage. If you have your Bibles, Hebrews 3, I'm so sorry. I got so excited to get into it. This is uh, the Word of God. This is Hebrews 3. I'm going to read from verse 1 to 6. And this is what Holy Scripture says. Therefore, holy brothers... You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. And that's the big call. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if we indeed hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This is the word of the Lord. He's telling Hebrew Christians that Jesus is greater because the Hebrew Christians are being tempted to go back to their old Judaism. And the author of Hebrews is calling them forward to Christ and not to go backwards towards Judaism. And the way that he's doing that is by trying to prove to them that Jesus has greater glory than Moses. Now, this doesn't seem like a huge deal to us. It seems almost assumed that Jesus is greater than Moses. But you have to understand that for those who are coming from a Judaic background, this is huge. This is a big paradigm shift to say that Jesus is greater than Moses. You see, Moses was the figure of the past for them. Don't you remember that the Old Testament people in the desert, they waited at the base of Mount Sinai for Moses to come down from Mount Sinai to tell them what was what. Moses was the one who went up to go meet with God, and God would speak to Moses. And so when Moses came down and they looked at Moses as as if they were looking at the face of God. Because it was through him, it was through Moses that they knew anything. It was through Moses' words that they knew what was right and what was wrong. It was through Moses that they knew what was and what wasn't. They couldn't even move in the wilderness without Moses moving first. They waited on him, and so Moses was their hero. He was the one that they waited on. He told them what reality was, and so Moses was their great hero of the past. To people who think like that, the author of Hebrews is saying, but consider Jesus and how his glory is so much greater than Moses the servant. In verses 5 and 6, he says that Moses was faithful, but he was faithful as a servant. And now Jesus has come, and Jesus' faithfulness is different because he's not just a servant. Jesus is the son. And what he means by that is that Jesus has authority over Moses. That's kind of hard for a Jew to fathom, that anyone would have authority over Moses. Because Moses came down with the word of God, the law of God shining with glory, and he presented the Ten Commandments and the law of God to the people. He was authority. You see how hard this is for them to believe that Jesus has greater authority to Moses. But this is what he's saying. Moses delivered the word to you. He delivered the law to you. He was a delivery boy of the law and the word, but Jesus is the word himself. The law was only given to you until Jesus came, and his authority now has to supersede the law. He's not not come to demolish the law, but he's come to supersede 
the law. And let me give you one picture of this to help you to understand what this means. If you look at the book of Acts, there's this moment when Peter is uh, taking a nap on the roof of Simon the Tanner. And while he's taking this nap, God gives him this vision. And this vision is this picture of unclean animals. This blanket comes out of the sky and it has unclean animals and unclean foods. And Peter has a visceral reaction to this. You see, you have to understand that for Peter and for the Jews, ever since they were little Jewish boys and ever since they were little Jewish girls, they were told what was right and wrong. They were told what was clean and unclean. And they were told what foods they could eat and what foods they couldn't eat. And if they asked mommy, why is this unclean? She would say, because Moses said so. And if they said, why did Moses say so? She would say, because Moses said so. That's it. (laughs) Why are you asking so many questions? Because Moses said so. Peter grew up his whole life under this law of Moses clean and unclean, and this blanket comes down with unclean foods, and you can just picture Peter uh, wincing in his sleep, going, ugh, at these unclean foods. And the most surprising command comes from God. Peter, eat. Can you imagine? Peter, eat it. Eat it. And Peter says, by no means, Lord. In our words, no way. His exact words are this, by no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything common or unclean. I've never done this. No way. Not a chance. I've never done this in my life. And you see how hard this is for them. You see how hard this is for Peter ever since he was a little boy. It's in his bones, in his DNA. It's what he grew up with. It's internal to him. But God says, what God has made clean, do not call common. You see, he's trying to break Peter's paradigm. You see, Peter, the reason you know that this is clean and unclean is because I said so. I have authority, and I give authority now to my son. But it says in the book of Acts that when Peter heard this, he was inwardly perplexed, that everything inside of him, it didn't make sense to him. And he had to take time to try to understand what God was doing. But Peter here was at a crossroads. Is he going to choose Moses Or is he going to choose the word of God? And the Hebrew Christians that this letter is going to is going through very similar things, but even to a greater degree. Because this is not just talking about foods. This is talking about the entirety of the Judaic religious system that had to be rethought with the advent of Christ. That now that Jesus had come, they have to rethink everything because now Jesus is going to rearrange and have authority over everything they grew up knowing. And for the writer of the Hebrews, he's gonna, it's going to take a lot for him to convince them of this. Right? They grew up. I mean, there are things that we have, too, growing up, that it's so hard to change. And imagine trying to change this. And so the writer of Hebrews has to convince these Hebrews that Jesus is greater. And the way that you do that for the Hebrews is not through arguments. You know, when uh, the Apostle Paul was writing uh, to the Corinthians, he, he says that the Greeks demand wisdom but the Jews demand signs. This is what it means. It just means that they're of different cultures. The Greeks loved philosophy and talking and um, intellectual discussions. And so if you wanted to convert a Greek, use wisdom. You can't do that with the Jews. The Jews, their history has to do with plagues. It has to do with miraculous signs. Their history has the Red Sea parted. You can't argue a Jew into believing. The Jews demand signs and experience power. 
That's what's going to take for a Jew. And so for the author of Hebrews, he decides to talk about the glory of Jesus. You see, glory is something you experience, right? The literal definition of glory is weight. That if you have a glass of water and you put a marble in, the marble has greater weight than the water, so the marble goes to the bottom. It is of greater glory than the water. But glory is not just weight. It's also something you experience. Remember when Isaiah experienced God and the glory of his robe filled the temple, what does Isaiah do? He almost viscerally, uh, in reflex, bows down before God. Why? Because the glory of the Lord had come. Something of more weight and significance had entered into that room, and he responds by bowing down his head. The Jews needed a sign. And so he starts to talk about the glory of Moses compared to the glory of Jesus, and he says that the glory of Jesus is far better. And it makes sense that he chooses this because those are the two men where you actually see them radiate with God's glory. Don't you remember when Moses was in the desert with the Lord and he actually shone with God's glory? It's because Moses had the audacity to ask God if he could see him face to face. You see, God is saying that um, he's going to leave his people that the people had screwed up too much. And then he says to Moses, Moses, you know what? These people, they are unfaithful people. Let's just start over, Moses, you and me. And Moses said, how can you even think about doing that? God, these are your people. These are your people. How can you leave them? And he intercedes for his people. And God sees his heart. God sees his faithfulness. And he says, I will be with you. And Moses, you and me, we're going to be like this. I will know you like I've never known anyone else in history. You and I will be intimate and close. You will know my face and I will know you. And Moses takes that opportune moment to say, okay then God, then show me your face. If you want to know me like that, show me your face. We've always wondered what you look like. We've always wondered what you are like. Show me your face just one time. And God says to him, Moses, I can't. If I showed you my face, it would overwhelm you. And if I showed you my face, you would, be, you would die. And I have more that I need you to do here. And so why don't we do this? I'll hide you in the cleft of a rock, and I'll walk past you, and you can see my back, just the back of my glory. And Moses experiences the back of God's glory, and he comes down the mountain after experiencing that, shining so brightly that the people around them, around him, are scared, are afraid. It must have been an awesome sight. They're afraid of Moses because of what his face looks like, and they force him to wear a veil. And that's what happened when Moses just saw the reflection of his back, the glory of God. The author of Hebrews argues that the glory of Jesus far surpasses that. Because the glory of Jesus is the radiance of God's glory himself. If you remember the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus radiates intensely white, he's not radiating, he's not glowing there with God's glory because it's a reflection of God. It's because he is God. Hebrews 1.3 says this, he is the radiance of of God's glory. This is what it means. Sometimes kids will ask you, why do uh, light bulbs glow? And uh, if you ever try to explain to a kid why a light bulb glows, you have to tell them, well, it's not the bulb, but there's like this wire inside the bulb, and it's not the wire either. 
It's when electricity goes through that wire, it glows. And that electricity is the thing that glows, and everything else kind of contains it. The electricity is the radiance of the glory of the bulb. You see? And when Hebrews 1.3 says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He's saying he is the thing that shines from the glory of God. Moses saw a part of it in God's back, and it reflected off of him. But Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus shows us the Father. He shows us the character, the power, the glory of the Father himself. The thing that Moses was so curious to see, I want to know what you're like. I want to know exactly what you're like. I want to see your face. The disciples asked Jesus, can you show us the Father? And Jesus says, look at my face. Look at my face. When you see me, you see the Father. Don't you know that? Have you been with me all this time and you don't know? When you see my face, you see the Father's face. He is like me. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And that's what the author of Hebrews is telling the Hebrew Christians so that they do not lose hope and run towards Christ and not move backwards towards Judaism. If they are going to persevere in this faith, overcome this uh, persecution and all the difficulties that they're enduring, they're going to have to see that Jesus' glory is far greater, more significant, more beautiful than Moses. They cannot move backwards. They have to move towards Christ. Now, I wondered this week, what does this have to do with us? Because not a single person in this room is tempted to become a Jew. Probably. If you are, talk to me afterwards. We'll talk about that. But it's not really a struggle that we deal with. It's not really a thing that you wrestle with. And so I wondered, what is the crux of the thing? What is really the core thing that we're struggling with as well? And as I thought about it, I realized that there's something that's really pulling at them. Because I wonder, do they really think that Moses is greater than Jesus? I mean, they're Hebrews, but they're Hebrew Christians. So they made a decision to follow after Jesus despite the persecution and hardship. Did they really believe that Moses is greater than Jesus? Probably not. Probably intellectually in their minds, they're probably not struggling with it, but they feel Moses a lot more than they feel Jesus. You see, the religious system that's around them, it's so tangible and it's so dense that it's sometimes hard to believe and move into what you truly believe because of the things that you feel around you. Have you guys ever heard of plausibility structures? Plausibility structures are the environment that you live in that tell you this is crazy and this is not crazy. It makes some things plausible, makes some things unplausible. Plausibility structures. When you live in a dense Jewish system, think about um, Orthodox Jews in Brooklyn, or think about some people like that. They live in such a dense community of the law, and Moses is always around them. The sacrifices, they smell it. The Torah, they hear it being read. They feel Moses all around them. But not only that, they added so much to the law of Moses that there was so much of the law around them. Let me explain. When Jesus came in the New Testament, um, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they had added 613 laws on top of Moses' law. 
in the Talmud and the religious writings. And they held everybody accountable to those things. 613 laws on top. Can you imagine how much that surrounds your life? How much that runs your life? How much of that um, really affects you? But a lot of it wasn't Moses. A lot of it was man-made stuff. 613 laws that they put on top. It was man-made stuff that they made into law. And they forced everybody to follow it. And if you didn't, you were an apostate. And I realized, how does this apply to us? There is actually a lot that sometimes we impose on each other and that we feel imposed on us in the church that's not from God. And sometimes we get stuck in these things, man-made things that we have a hard time leaving to follow Jesus into the future of the church because we feel like we have to stick to these things that were imposed on us in the past. When the elders and I, we were training for their eldership, <coughs> we read a book by Tom Rainier called um, Autopsy of a Deceased Church. And it just asked the question, why do some churches die? Why is it that some churches have the spirit of God and are fulfilling the great commission of Jesus and then all of a sudden they just start to die off? And so they did an autopsy on dead churches. And he studied why churches die in America. And he lists a bunch of reasons why, and very helpful. One reason is because the church becomes inward. They just think about us. They just think about me and my church friends, and it's just us. That's one of the things that kills off a church. Another thing is personal preferences drive everything. The church doesn't pray. It becomes very man-centered. The church has no clear purpose we keep gathering on Sundays, but where are we, what are we doing? That's why we drive towards discipleship. But the church has no clear purpose. And the church, last one, is church obsesses over buildings and facilities. But there's one reason that he lists that is kind of like the reason above all reasons. And uh, he highlights this, and I want to read you this quote. He says that dying churches, they glorify and worship something called a historic past in the church. Let me read you what he wrote. He said, after all their study, the most pervasive and common thread of all our autopsies was that the deceased churches lived for a long time with the past as hero. They held on more tightly with each progressive year. They often clung to things of the past with desperation and fear. And when any internal or external force tried to change the past, they responded with anger and resolution. We will die before we change. And die they did. The historic past. The heroic past. Sometimes churches, we get stuck in the way that we do things. And those things become a law unto us. Things that worked in the past. That the Holy Spirit used in the past. That don't need to become eternal things. That are timeless things that we must do forever. But sometimes churches get stuck in these ways. And those ways become in many ways like the laws of Moses to us, always going back to those things. And when that happens, we can't go forward with Christ. We can't consider what Jesus is doing. Consider Jesus. We can't do that because we're so stuck in the things that, the way we used to do things. But I think the worst thing that happens when the church falls into this is that we become arrogant. So we become arrogant and proud. Because if you think about it, we're saying that we know these methods. We know how church should be done. And we take God, the Spirit, and we put him in a box. We call it an approach. 
And we say, this is the way it's got to be done. And we become God. See, we become arrogant and our hearts become calloused. And we don't need to hear from God anymore because we know how to do it anyway. Those are the things that become the law of Moses unto us and close us off to the new things that Jesus is doing. Mosaic, I, I want to warn you of this now. You know, as our church moves into the future, you will feel this. As things change, there's going to be a part of you that feels like, I don't want to change that. That's the way we've always done it. Why are you touching that? We always have to reevaluate whether we are considering the way that Jesus is moving us in the future or if we're being stuck in the ways of the past. Let me tell you, this is especially going to be poignant when things are hard at Mosaic. When our church goes through rough times, there's going to be a part of you that says, this is because we changed this. This is because we moved away from this. And it might not be a thing of God, but it might just be a familiar security blanket that you want to go back to. My brothers and sisters, in those moments, we have to consider Jesus. We have to consider Jesus. What is he doing in our church? We need to be open to the Spirit. And I especially want to approach um, some of us who've been in here in this church a long time. And you have your circle of friends. And it's hard for you to open up to more people at church. But I think the most stark thing that he's doing in Mosaic is he's brought a lot of new people. You know, in the past nine months, the Lord has brought over 300 new people through our doors in the past nine months. How many of them have you been open to get to know? Or is it you want to go backwards to your friends, keep your church experience the same? What is he doing in our church? And are you open to it? I know that it feels more comfortable to go backwards. But the author of Hebrews is saying in those times, look upwards. Consider Jesus. Don't go back to the ways that the Lord has brought you through, but look forward and upward. Consider Jesus. He is of greater glory than Moses. He is more significant than the past. Jesus is the hero of your future, not just looking to the past. But secondly, how this text applies to us, I think, maybe the more powerful way, is that Jesus being greater and of greater glory is he addresses our personal pasts and our sins, the things that shackle us even today. Let's read verse 5 again. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. When he uses that word son, he's trying to imbue authority upon Christ. That Moses was a servant and he brought you God's word, but here is the one who wrote God's word. He has authority over the law. The law told you when you transgressed. The law told you when you messed up. The law told you when you sinned. But Jesus came and tells you how you're released. Tells you how you're forgiven. Because he has authority over the law. And this is the difference. And we really need to drink this in today. The difference is that Jesus Christ, who had greater glory than Moses, 
more power than the law. He did not use that authority to stamp you out because you're a sinner. He did not use that power and authority to punish sinners. But he came with that glory and authority as the son. And he died on a cross and brought himself low to release you and forgive you from your past. He is a greater authority than Moses. But he used that authority to free us because he had the authority to free you. And when the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Because nobody has authority over Jesus. And so when the Son says you're forgiven, you are forgiven. When the Son says you are free, my brothers and sisters, you are free. The authoritative Son has come and used his power and authority, his glory, not to bring condemnation, but to bring release. That message, we Christians, we call that the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus, that he could have come in power and glory to bring condemnation. But the good news is he brought freedom and release for the captives. We have to drink that in. And I want to ask you, have you really believed it? Have you really drunk that in? Do you really believe that? Because I think that a lot of us live with a low-frequency guilt and shame all the time. A lot of us feel chains in our life all the time. That when you're not doing well, you feel guilt and shame. And then when you're doing well, you're afraid that tomorrow you won't do well. And that you feel guilt and shame. And that you know in your head that Jesus has set you free, but you, in your emotions you don't know. That you are free, but you're not free indeed. That there's this low-level guilt that's constantly in us. And we need to start to believe that when the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Today, that is what the Lord is proclaiming to Mosaic Church. And I pray that you receive it. Let me give you one picture of this and I'll be done. In John 8, I think all of the things that we talked about today come together in one picture. In John 8, there's an adulterous woman who's caught in the act. She committed adultery when she was engaged to her fiancé. And these religious leaders and Pharisees catch her in the act. Now, how they caught her in the act, I'm not sure. But they caught her in the act and they drag her almost in my mind. I picture her being dragged by the hair by the Pharisees and thrown at the feet of Jesus in front of all these people. Every single commentator I read says this was absolutely unnecessary. They didn't need to do it this way. They probably shouldn't have done it this way. But this is the way they've always done it. This is the way they've always done it. They throw this woman in front of Jesus and they say to him in John 8 verse 4 to 5. They said to him, teacher. This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, he commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Now here's a moment of truth. Is Jesus greater than Moses? Like for real. Is he really greater than Moses? Is he going to uphold Moses' law? Because in Deuteronomy 22, it does say if someone is caught in the act of adultery in their engagement, they should be stoned. But Rome took away the right to capital execution from the Jews. 
Jesus is damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. What will he do? But the thing about it is, this was all wrong. Where's the guy? Why is it just the woman? You can't commit adultery by yourself. In Deuteronomy 22, it says that both people should be punished. But why did you just bring the woman? You know why? Because this is the way they always did it. To bring a man into this situation and accuse a man had a lot of consequences. Men had power, men had influence, men had the money. Very, very tricky to accuse a man like this. But women were oppressed, can be oppressed. So they brought this woman because this is the way they always did it. This oppressive system, it was done all wrong. And if Jesus stoned this woman, he would be playing into the way that they've done this, man-made religion, the way they've always done it, and done it wrong. If Jesus stones her, then he would be playing into this. If he doesn't, then he's going to be ignoring the law of Moses. It's in that moment that Jesus bends down and he writes something in the sand. We don't know exactly what he writes. I'm going to ask him one day. When we get to heaven, I'm going to ask, it's going to be one of my questions. What did you write exactly in that sand? I want to know. But here's my suspicion. My suspicion is that he wrote down the actual law of Moses that says that if anyone desires to execute someone for a sin, they cannot be guilty of the sin themselves. If you're going to execute an adulterer, you cannot be an adulterer. If you're going to execute someone for witchcraft, you cannot be a witch. I think that Jesus writes down that and the sins of those who are in that religious circle in the sand. Because the word that the Greek, the Greek word for right in this instance is not the normal word for right, graphene, but it's katagrapheni, which is a very specific word for right, which means to write down the accusations and the record of wrongs for someone. It's to write down somebody's wrongs. I wonder, why did he use that word? My suspicion is that he's writing the sins of the religious leaders, and I think a few of the guys who dragged this woman into this pit were adulterers themselves. It's the first Me Too moment in the church. And it says that one by one, these men started leaving the circle. And that using the law of Moses, Jesus exonerates this woman, upholding the law. But it's not over. Because even though these religious leaders had left the circle, this woman was still under condemnation. Because there was someone who could stone her, Jesus. He was not an adulterer. He had every right to do it. And so she still must be on the ground in fear until Jesus bends down and looks at her in the face, and he says this, woman, where are they who condemn you? What a question. He says, do you see anyone who condemns you? She's looking at him in the face, and this woman staring into the face of the Lord of glory, the radiance of the glory of God, as Moses asked, I want to see your face because I want to know what you are like. And she looks at the face of the Lord of glory himself. 
the radiance, the true character of God. And what does she see in that glory? What is he actually like? She sees mercy. She sees compassion. She sees forgiveness. And he says to her, does anyone condemn you? And looking at the face of glory himself, she says, nobody. No one condemns me. And he says, that's right. You are released. And who the Son sets free is free indeed. Because no one has authority over the Son of glory. If he set her free, then she's free. My brother and sister, if you're living with guilt, this low-frequency shame that you always carry around, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. No one condemns you. You look into the face of Jesus Christ today in your worship, and he looks back at you with full compassion, mercy, and forgiveness. And that is more true than what you feel in your bones. You might be like Peter, and you're still trying to overcome. Because you've lived this way your whole life. You've lived with this weight of burden and shame your whole life. And I know it's hard to let go of the law. But who the Son sets free is free indeed. Today, I proclaim freedom for the captives. I pray that today you would experience what it's like to look into the face of the radiance of the glory of God and see mercy and see forgiveness and see love. Because he's greater than Moses. And that's who's staring back at you, the face of glory. Let's go to him in prayer. And let's, um, let's spend some time doing that. Look into the face of he who is the radiance of the glory of God. And if you wonder, what are you you like? He looks back at you. He says, I am compassion. Because on the cross, I have released you. And if I released you, you are free. My brothers and sisters, let's take our burdens, our guilt, and all the things that you're carrying that's been so heavy in your life, let's take it to him the radiance of the glory of God, whose name is mercy. Let's go to him in prayer together.